from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Craig Sauer, Senior Editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. Today's guest is Jim Stickley, CEO of Stickley on Security. The cybersecurity expert says threats aren't going away for credit unions, and they're getting worse. Stickley talked to my CUNA colleague, Bill Merrick, by phone recently, not long after speaking to the CUNA National Credit Union Roundtable for Board Leadership in mid-August. Can you tell me where you're from and how you got into computers and security? Yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up in San Diego, um, born and raised. I think I'm one of three people in the in the world that actually <laughs> were, was born in San Diego and still lives in San Diego. So most people are transplants. But I uh, I got into computers in 1982 was when I got my first computer. I was 12 years old. It was a Texas Instruments TI-99 computer, which is the most awesome computer ever made. And I, uh, I was immediately hooked. I thought computers were the greatest things. And it came with this one little basic programming book. And so I started, you know, writing all the little programs in basic and was just hooked. And so every birthday, every holiday, every, every time I had a chance for people to give me stuff, instead of asking for balls or whatever normal cool kids ask for, I would just ask for programming books. And that's all I would ever get. And so I was very into programming and I learned several different languages, and as, you know, I progressed through computers and moved from TI-99 on to Commodore VIC-20 and Commodore 64, then my first IBM, you know, I just, I continued to learn more and more languages. Um, during that same time, I was still just a young kid. I was really into what are known as BBSs, and that was long before the Internet. The way that you could communicate between one computer to another computer was through a BBS, and you'd hook up your phone to your computer and through a modem and then call another computer somewhere else. And sometimes they were automated where it would just be all automation. Sometimes an actual human would be there, and you could talk to people. And so finally I was like, ooh, look, hey, now I have friends. People will talk to me. And I got really into that, and turned out, though, that unlike now where you pay a flat rate to call anywhere in the world, pretty much, for, for one flat rate. Back in the day, even if you called other cities, there was toll charges, and so you'd pay like a penny a minute or a couple cents a minute. Um, I was just a dumb kid. I had no idea about this, and it was summertime when I was doing a lot of this, and one day my parents came home, and they were just losing their minds because I had spent you know an entire month from the minute I got up in the morning till the minute I went to bed connected on the phone to these different computers, God knows where, and I had run up quite an astronomical phone bill. There goes your allowance, so, huh? Oh, yeah, a little bit more than my allowance. And so my parents were like, you can't do this anymore, of which I then freaked out because I was like, oh, no, you know, you're taking away my friends and the ability for me to do anything. So I decided I had to solve my problem of long distance and paying for it. So I started riding my bike around town, and whenever I'd see the packed bell vans parked on the side of the road, I would just ride up to the van, and um, they would generally be outside doing whatever they were doing, and I would just climb into the van and kind of borrow all of their manuals and just take them all home, with the intention, of course, to return them. But uh, I slowly built an entire library of everything that, that these guys had, all the technicians had of all of their manuals, and started learning the phone systems from the inside out. And... You know, I, I discovered lots of really cool stuff. I discovered that you could control a lot of what happens on the phones right through the tones in the phones themselves. But I also started hearing about and finding out about these things called freak codes. 
And freak codes were what allowed me to call anywhere in the world for free, and that solved my long-distance problems, and also was kind of the beginning of what I guess would be hacking for me. And again, I wasn't a malicious kid. I wasn't trying to make money or be bad. I just didn't want my parents to beat hell out of me, and so I was trying to solve a simple problem, and that was that was kind of how I got started. And um, as I got older, I started hearing about the Internet, and back then it wasn't like now. It was... Uh, Again, you'd use a modem, you'd dial in, and there was only a few places you could get access, like colleges, and if you had a corporation, you might have a T1 line, but that was even rare. So I was started hacking into the colleges so that I could connect to this Internet thing, and that was kind of interesting, and it started teaching me how I had to write back doors so the colleges couldn't get me out. And again, I wasn't trying to make money, wasn't trying to do anything bad, I just wanted knowledge. It was just fun, it was just interesting, and so that was really how I got my start in all of this stuff. Um, it turned out, you know, I was, I was pretty good at it as I got into my uh, late teens, early 20s. Uh, companies started hiring me to write software and um, also do development work and test software and do those types of things. And really, I spent my pretty much my, my whole life I've spent either being hired to hack in and steal whatever people want me to steal or physically go in and steal whatever they want me to steal. And I'm what, I'm 40, just about to turn 47 now. So I've I've been I've been stealing stuff for a long time. I guess. <laughs> you must be very good at it. So <laughs> I, I, it's a it's a weird claim to fame, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if my parents should be proud of me or disappointed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not not a criminal. Never uh, never got in trouble with the law. Never been to jail. Never been arrested. Nothing like that. Knock on wood. I've just uh, you know was always working for the good guys, just testing to see what vulnerabilities they had and try to detect them before the bad guys. So was that uh, kind of the start of Trace Security and Stickly on Security then? I mean, did you actually, you actually did that through Trace Security, which you co-founded? Yeah, well, I'd done stuff with other security companies before. Trace Security was the first company I started on uh, as my own company. It was a, you know, co-partners with another partner of mine. We started it up, and at that time when we started it, that was back in, damn, 2000. And at that time... You know, my idea was, hey, maybe we'll have enough money to buy some beer. You know, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was going to become a big corporation and it was going to take off. You know, I, I had set my sights much smaller, but it turned out cybersecurity was just starting to take off at that point in time, and it was kind of the right place, right time, and it, it exploded. And so, I had a really fun run with Trace Security, and then a few years ago, I started kind of burning out. I'd done it a long time. And was kind of getting depressed seeing how much you'd spend all this time testing companies and finding all these vulnerabilities, but it didn't seem to be getting any better. It was actually kind of just mind numbing. Like you'd just go, oh my God, like we'd spend all this time, we'd show them all these vulnerabilities, and then you'd come back and talk to them later, and come back a year later, and they'd have more vulnerabilities and more issues. And it seemed that it was always tying back to the employees. And I started realizing that the education is where organizations were failing. So I decided that was kind of exciting, something different. So I walked away from Trace and um, started up Stickly on Security and started focusing on the education side of things. And not just education for employees, but also education for members and creating solutions so that credit unions could actually educate their members so they would quit falling victim to all these scams. Because, again, if you don't know about it, 
you're going to fall victim. I mean, it's just kind of that simple. It's not because people are stupid. It's because they're just not aware of what the latest trend and the latest risk and the latest scam is out there. So our goal is to try to educate and make sure that both employees and members are very aware of what the risks are on day-to-day. And that hopefully can reduce their risk. And we've seen a huge turnaround in the organizations that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. Where do uh, credit union employees typically fall short? I mean, what, what seems to get them more than other things? I mean, number one is email. I mean, they're across the board. There, there's, there's nothing even that comes close to that one. I mean, like if you're, you know, doing some sort of like bar chart or something. I mean, there's a be at the very top, and everything else would be like twenty percent compared to that hundred percent. It, it'd be nuts the difference because it's it's such an easy target. I mean, when you're talking about, let's say an organization, let's say this credit union has a hundred employees. Um, and me, as someone trying to break in, me being the criminal, has to figure out a way in. If you're telling me all I have to do is get one of those 100 employees to click a link or open an attachment um, at any point in time, just one time, and I'm going to be able to gain access to their network, I, I love those odds. I mean, everybody loves those odds because everybody makes mistakes, and that's your hope is that you're, you know, as a criminal can come up with this one new angle That'll be this one email that'll look like it came from a coworker or a business that you work with or whatever it happens to be, and get that employee at just the right moment where they'll click the link or they'll open the attachment, and boom, the, the, the damage is done. They're in, and that's that's how quick and easy it is for these criminals. Mm-hmm. So, what's the I guess what kind of training do you offer credit unions? Then, what do you tell them, and what do you tell their employees um, beyond you know don't click stuff that you get in uh, in a random email? First, the big problem to me is what I find most times is organizations will contact me just in general and they, through the years and say, hey, we're doing our yearly training. Would you come out and speak to our staff? And I go, oh, yeah, I'd love to. So you go out and you talk to the staff and they get an hour, hour and a half of security training. And that's kind of the security training for the year. And then it's, it's kind of one and done. And to me, that's that's the beginning of the problem is that this needs to be something that's a, a continual, nonstop reminder type situation that's going throughout the year and so that's where our organization really focuses on it's not that once a year thing to me you need to do minimum quarterly training where you have different stuff each quarter that you're covering with these employees keeping them aware of major things um you should mix that in of course with some sort of phishing testing and that type of thing and then the most important part is the awareness component where you're on a daily basis providing them with, here's what's happening now. Here's the latest thing that's gone on today. And that's where our company really thrives is the fact that we write news every single day. So every day they're getting updates on here's what's happening right now. So their employees, it's simple for them to do. They can set it up so they get it once a week or they can set it up so they get it daily. It's kind of up to them or they can just pick and choose what they pass on to their employees. But by keeping them aware of very simple to understand concepts that are happening on a daily basis, it takes the employee, you know, 30 seconds to a minute to read and now they're aware of what's going on today and they go, oh, okay, so when that email comes in or when they hit that website or, or when they get that weird phone call, They've already been told, hey, that's going to be coming because it's happening right now. And when it happens to them, they go, you know, this is a joke, and they can just bypass it and move on. And, and that's really all it takes. It's just knowing it's happening so you don't fall victim when it happens to you. You've, I, to, From what I've read, and I think we've actually – I think you were on the cover of Credit Union Magazine at one point. Um, you've actually gone into credit unions and as like posing as a worker – 
and trying to uh, steal information. You've um, done things such as setting up a fake ATM, uh, those types of things. What's that like? And what what's the maybe one of the, the craziest episodes you've ever had? Or, or what's one of the most memorable uh, events that you've had when you've gone in and tried to steal information, you know, for the for ultimately for the, the organization's good? Um, yeah, yeah uh, for, it's, it's a crazy rush. I mean, so I've, I've robbed a lot. They ran the numbers a while back. It's probably been five or six years ago. And um, at that point in time, they ran that I had physically gone into financial institutions in general, their facilities, um, over a thousand of them, and robbed them without getting caught. So I've had a pretty long track record, um, and uh, had a pretty pretty good track record. I've had a lot of luck with it so far. Um, as far as the crazy, I mean, they're they're all an adrenaline rush. I mean, it doesn't matter how many of these things you do. Every time I'm about to walk in the door dressed as whatever I'm pretending to be, your your heart takes that extra beat, and you get that little shot of adrenaline as you walk in the doors because it is kind of crazy. I mean, you're you're going in to rob a financial institution, and that's that's just kind of weird. Um, one that was kind of funny, I was doing a segment. It was for some news station, and they wanted to get footage of me as I walked in the door, for that one, I think I was a pest inspector. And so what they had done is they decided they were going to send another employee in from the new station so that they could kind of have a hidden camera and film me walking through the door into this particular uh, branch. And I was like, okay, whatever. So when I, when I come in, they get the shot. Well, it turns out the employees decide that this guy who's filming is a criminal because recently there had been a rash of, of break-ins by somebody, that, a male, a Hispanic male. And so, and he fit the description. So they're calling the police on the guy who was filming me coming in, not realizing I'm the one that was actually robbing them. And it was, it was really kind of a bizarre twist and it was really kind of funny. And, uh, so that was probably the most wacky one for me. Oh, that's great. So you've never been caught then? You've never, never, never even been marched out of a credit union lobby or a bank lobby, or no. The closest thing that I'd had to being caught is years ago. I was uh, on a job with another employee, and I was doing training with him. And we were we were robbing uh, that place was uh, it was a credit union. We were robbing credit unions at night. We were going after the cleaning crew and having the cr- cleaning crew let us in. And we hit several locations and had a lot of success. And we went to this one location, and I said, okay, you go ahead and go in on your own on this one. I'm going to stay in the car. And he went to the door, tried to get in, and they, the cleaning crew wouldn't let him in. And he came back, and he was posing as though he was an employee, just had forgotten his keys. And so he comes back to the car, and he's like, they wouldn't let me in. And I go, don't accept no for an answer. Like, if you were really an employee and you drove all the way to work to do something and you couldn't get in, you'd be irritated. Go back to the door, bang on it again, and tell them let you in. You're an employee. Because we had fake IDs printed up, and it looked very real. So he went back, banged on the door. But by then, he was kind of too little too late, and they, were, they weren't letting him in. And he came back to the car again. And I was a little bit frustrated because my whole thing is you got to sell it right out of the gate. You know, if you're, if you're going to pretend to be whatever it is, from the minute you walk up, you've got to be that thing and you can't, you can't break. So he'd kind of already blown it, but they had told him the second time that they weren't going to let him in because they were going to call somebody to confirm. So I was like, well, wait and see who they call because I doubt they're calling anybody. So by this point in time, we've been there like 15 minutes and he goes back a third time and they won't talk to him. And now, you know, it's kind of getting shady. We, we stayed way too long, and generally we would have just left as the first one, but I just wanted to kind of teach a lesson. So he gets back in the car, and he's the driver, and I'm the passenger, and we pull out of the parking lot, and I'm like, okay, you know, lesson learned. He's like, absolutely. And we start driving down. It's nighttime, and up ahead of us, as we're driving on the road, we just see this line of police cars coming towards us with their lights on. And uh, he's like, uh, 
think that's for us? And I'm like, <laughs> you think? And so sure enough, as we drive by, every cop does a U-turn behind us and end up pulling us over, and it becomes a whole big chaotic mess that night. So so technically, I guess I have been pulled over uh, by the police once where we pushed it. But, uh, you know, we have all our paperwork, and after about uh, 45 minutes or so of sorting everything out, they they finally, you know, relax. But that was probably the only time, that is the only time where I've ever actually had a run-in with the police. Wow, that's that's a good track record. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you, I guess, what have you learned from your, your forays into crime? Any any certain lessons come to mind? Yeah, I mean, the, the number one thing is people have uh, some sort of an inner voice, if you will, and I'm convinced of this because every time, whether I've hacked in where I've done it through emails or whether I've physically gone and had conversations and stolen what I need to steal, and you talk to the people later, they always say, you know, oh, I thought something was weird because of dot, dot, dot. And they have reasons. And in some cases, they even talk to other coworkers about it and say, like, hey, this guy who's on site is pretending to be a fire inspector. You know, he's supposed to be a fire inspector, but don't you think it's weird? Like, his uniform is missing something. They actually have these, like, these inner monologues or external where they actually communicate with somebody about it. But then they rationalize it away, and they say, oh, but then I thought, you know, probably this is why. Or I got that email, and it seemed weird, but it also had someone's signature, so I figured it was okay. And to me, I say if you could just learn to go with that first instinct, your your first instinct is almost always going to be right. If something seems weird, if something seems off, don't convince yourself it's okay. Stick with that first feeling and investigate further and be suspicious. And, you know, if that email seems strange, Stop. Don't just move forward. Follow that first little voice in your head. Or if someone's on your facility and something just seems weird to you, follow up on it. Make it so you start bringing other people and get them involved and, and do something about it. Don't just don't just assume it must be okay. We, we hear about a lot of different cybersecurity uh, breaches in, in the news and everything. What security threats scare you the most? Well, I mean, right now it's in the healthcare industry for sure. I mean, just because it seems they're doing a, a very poor job of securing very critical equipment. I mean, you're talking about life and death in those situations. So to me, obviously, that's that's more concerning than anything else. Obviously, when you're talking about the financial sector, you start talking about, okay, what personal information is at risk. And um, in the past, you know, people didn't really worry as much about the – the entire database being compromised. They're worried about, okay, someone might get in. They might steal a little bit of information here and there. They might have access to this or that. But it's always been kind of treated as we'll address it and we'll deal with it and it won't be that big of a deal. The problem is that with the newer automated software that's out there, and by software I mean the malware, so there's there's a lot of automation going on now to where if a piece of malware ends up, for example, on a teller's computer, that malware can literally simulate being the teller, go in on behalf of the teller to whatever that core processor is, pull it up as though it's the teller pulling up information, and go through the entire core processor, just database, you know, every single piece of information one at a time, and pull every record, send those records out to somewhere on the Internet, and do it all in a very quick, automated fashion. So from the time that the person's been compromised to the time that all the data's been pulled out of the database can be minutes to a couple hours. And... When you're talking about those kind of threats and that kind of risk, I mean, it, it changes it changes everything. I mean, because in the past, you talk about, oh, well, we'll have a bunch of layers. And when a person hacks onto our network, we'll see them poking around, and we'll see something will trip somewhere, and we'll catch them before too much damage is done. When you're talking about automation, where it's just simulating being a teller, that 
that doesn't happen. I mean, basically, it's just doing what a teller would do anyway. So there is no trip. There is no alarm. There's nothing that seems weird because it's what a normal teller would do. So that's the kind of stuff that's scary when I look at financial institutions. How, how prevalent are those types of attacks in credit unions? Have, have there been, has there been much of that in the credit union movement? No, it's still in its infancy right now. You've seen a few here and there, um, but it's still it's still very early. Um, this is kind of the 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 new trend that's just coming on the rise right now. It used to be that the criminal would sit on and they would learn things. And you know, the, you hear about this thing, the the Carbonac Gang. I don't know if you guys if you heard much about it, but they're still around. And their whole thing is like that: that they'll get into a, a network. And then they learn about it, and then once they've learned about it, then they exploit it and do whatever they need to do. But now you're seeing the new trend where it's just becoming more automation. And it's because automation is faster and there's less risk of getting caught. And you see it in retail industry a lot, but it's just now starting to, to work its way into other industries, including the financial sector. Could you tell me a little bit more about the, the Carbonac gang yeah, so they targeted, the primary targets were banks outside of the United States, though the United States banks did get caught up, and banks and credit unions did get caught up in it as well. Um, when the report came out, they had already stolen a billion with a B dollars, um, so they had a pretty good run. And it got a ton of press in like 2015, late 2015, and then the press is kind of like, Dropped like it just kind of just disappeared, and they were called the Carbonite Gang because that was the, the malware that they were using at that time. Um, since then, the gang hasn't gone away. They haven't been caught. They haven't been taken down. They're still around. They've expanded. They don't just do financial institutions anymore. They're going into other industries as well. And their whole thing that made them unique, especially with the banking side, was they weren't about stealing information. They were about stealing cash. So they would figure out whatever financial institution that they had broken into. They would study it for a while, sometimes several months, um, just sitting on the network and just learning everything they could about it until they figured out the best way to get funds out of that particular financial institution. And some of the scams they did, one of their big ones was they would, over time, find their way into the ATMs, put the ATMs in maintenance mode, and have the ATMs test the money feed. And basically, they would have people go wait outside the ATMs, and whenever they told them to go, they would test the money feed. The money feed would start feeding money out of the ATMs, and the person standing in front of it would collect it all. And you can go on YouTube and actually watch several videos of it happening. Um, so they've, they've had a lot of success. They're still going. They just don't get a lot of press for some reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and board members don't typically play a big role in, in security efforts. But what, what role do you think that, that board members should play in, in helping their credit unions guard against security threats? Well, actually, I mean, the, the regulators are now telling them they're supposed to be playing a big role. It, it used to be they, they really didn't. But now the regs are saying, hey, you're responsible. You're supposed to be reviewing all the stuff that's going on. When a new security policy has been implemented, you're supposed to be the one that's reviewed it and given the stamp of approval. And it's not to say that every board member has to be thoroughly knowledgeable about security, because there's some people that, let's face it, are just not going to be techie. They're not going to understand some of that. But in that case, they're supposed to be setting up a committee that is savvy and that does understand it, who can then come back to them, explain it all, so that the board can still stamp that approval that they have had it explained and they understand that they're doing what's right. And there's a number of things out there that the board are supposed to be asking. And again, there's, there's several regs that 
were put out, and then there's letters that actually explain to them, here's the questions you should be asking, and here's the things that you should be knowledgeable about. And if there's any board member that hasn't ever followed up on those or seen those questions or that stuff, they probably should be investigating it like today because they're responsible. They're supposed to know what's happening, and they're supposed to be aware of what what's been implemented and what's being done. The other thing they're supposed to be aware of is when there's any kind of a major um, – a major vulnerability that's discovered. So let's say tomorrow that something big happens and there's a new vulnerability that affects just about every PC out there. The board is responsible to get an update that tells them what that particular credit union has done to address that issue. Did it have an impact on them? And does it have any future impacts that they need to be aware of? Um, and then they're supposed to sign off on that. Now, it's not supposed to be for every little minor thing that's out there, but for the big things, they're supposed to be getting reports on this stuff so that they're aware of it and it's been documented so that if something does go down later on, they can say, hey, look, we were on top of this, and here's where you know, here's how we knew about it and what we did to make sure it wouldn't have an impact on our members. So what are some things that you do to protect your own personal information? Oh, my God. I, I'm, a, I'm a paranoid freak. I... <laughs> I uh, uh, live in a bubble. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I just basic things, the same things that probably everybody does, I guess. And that's, you know, you, you try to limit where your information is being shared. You try to monitor, I monitor the credit, my credit reports, obviously, uh, continually. Um, never click any links. In fact, uh, most people would probably say I'm an absolute nightmare to communicate with via email because I am, I, I, I treat email like it's the devil. I'm very paranoid about it. Um, my own business partner struggles to try to get me to open stuff that he sends me because I just I don't trust anything. Um, same thing with web browsing. I'm very, very picky and very choosy about where I'll browse on the internet. And I also have what I call beater computers. Um, I have computers that are actually important to me. And then I have other computers that I use that if I'm doing research or if I'm going to be banging around on the internet that have they're, they're just a beater computer that if it gets a virus, if something bad happens to it, it has no impact. I can wipe it and have it back up, and it'll have no bearing on anything, and it has no access. I don't use it for banking or any other online services. So, um, you know, kind of keeping a separation out there so that I, I'm not at risk. And that's the same with my kids as well. Um, my kids, you know, know they're not allowed to use any of my stuff. And I give my kids their own beater computers that I realize are absolutely going to have viruses on them and are going to just be a train wreck because, you know, they're idiot kids. So <laughs> You can buy a brand new computer, brand spanking new, for 150 bucks. Like, it's not like you're spending a ton of money. And a used one you can get for next to nothing. Any uh, any parting advice for credit union professionals about keeping their their credit union safe and secure? Um, I, again, I, I go to I'm, I'm biased, but I really really look into the education. Um, it's it's just such an important part of any security policy. I mean, you could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on all sorts of really cool security products and tools and all this stuff, and all it takes is one employee to make one mistake. Um, and that goes with your members as well. I mean, you can, you know, you do all this stuff for fraud prevention and trying to reduce it. But if your members are out there just clicking on everything and falling victim constantly and getting fished and doing all this stuff, you're the one who's eating the cost. You know, every time you have to issue them a new card, every time that they've had any money stolen, that's all coming back on you. So to me, it's try to do your best to get as much education as you can to your people. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.